zombies are getting closer. We have no way to escape. The military napalms San Diego. You know, <laughs> on balance, that may be a good thing. But I agree, it cuts down on our options. What have we got to fight them with? We've got the Oxford Book of English Verse. Uh, read them a poem. This sea that bears her bosom to the moon. The winds that will be howling at all hours and are upgathered now like sleeping flowers. For this, for everything, we are out of tune. It moves us not. Great God, I'd rather be a pagan suckled in a creed outworn. So might I, standing on this pleasantly, have glimpses that would make me less forlorn. This is incredible. The poetry turned them back into what they used to be. Poetry can even stop the zombie apocalypse. That's the topic of our show today. Poetry should be everywhere, not tucked away in ivory towers. You know what? You people enjoyed that poem so much. I'm going to read you another poem. This one is by Suzanne Summers. Sometimes when I'm sad and life is not what it seemed and even sex is like a song I've heard too often. I remember my two-week love, my underwear carefully selected, nervous blotches on my neck. Okay, poor choice. Here's Colin McEnroe. Back, zombies! Bad zombies! <laughs> All right, so that uh, turns out it depends on the poem you pick. Suzanne Summers, by the way, does write a lot of poems. She and I received a literary awards on the same night. That's actually true. <laughs> That's when I realized my literary career uh, was of a, um, I don't know, uh, an un unpalatable hue or something. Anyway, uh, but lots of people write poems. And one of the things that I'm endlessly fascinated by is the presence or lack thereof of poetry in just the general life of people. And it's, it's probably about as separated uh, in American life as, as it could ever be or, or uh, as it ever is anywhere. In a lot of places, poetry is just sort of part of public life. In Myanmar this year, now try to picture this, 11 poets were elected to parliament. Now there's a reason for that, which I could explain to you, but imagine that in one year, 11 poets were elected to parliament. Prior to being elected president of Ireland in 2011, Michael Higgins had published three volumes of poetry elected to president of Ireland in 2011. Uh, Yates, of course, was an Irish senator. Um, here in Connecticut, Wilbur Snow, who uh, served as the 75th governor of Connecticut I think sometime in the 1940s, um, for he served as governor for 13 days. But he was a very serious, active political figure uh, and also a very uh, serious published poet. Uh, and I'm not sure whether Wilbert Cross, who was Wilbert Snow's colleague and contemporary, considered himself a poet. But uh, listen to this. This is a, the beginning of a proclamation for Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving proclamation issued by uh, Governor Wilbert Cross. Time out of mind at this turn of the seasons when the hardy oak leaves rustle in the wind and the frost gives a tang to the air and the dusk falls early and the friendly evenings lengthen under the heel of Orion. It has seemed good to our people to join together in praising the creator and preserver who has brought us by a way that we did not know to the end of another year. So that's those are the actual written words of a governor. I mean, and I say all this not to suggest that politicians and poets should overlap all that much, but that poetry in public life is kind of a normal thing uh, in other countries and has been here at other times. There are plenty of countries where they have poetry on their banknotes, on their currency. I mean, poets, excuse me, the faces of poets on their banknotes, on their currency. So you kind of wonder what happened here 
because I just rode up in an elevator with a young woman and I asked her who her favorite poet was and she said she didn't have one and then she thought a while and she said Paul McCartney and then she said you asked the wrong person and I said yeah maybe not maybe just because you're in your 20s you didn't have that much poetry flung at you uh, the way some of us did when we were growing up so we're going to talk about that today it is National Poetry Month and uh, we're going to begin quickly by talking to uh, uh, Alexandra Petri who has been here for other reasons uh, she is a columnist for the Washington Post and a very very funny uh, columnist for the Washington Post. She writes the Compost blog there, and she's the author of A Field Guide to Awkward Silences. Uh, what she got recently was awkward but not a silence. She wrote a piece uh, about the possible obsolescence of poetry, which caused her to be burned in effigy at the McDowell Colony and various other uh, humiliations as well. Uh, so, Alexandra Pedri, first of all, welcome back to our airwaves. For having me. We still love you. We would never burn you in effigy. Uh, I appreciate that. Yeah, and actually, as in point of fact, you, you weren't burned in effigy, but you did cre- create kind of a stir by by asking whether or not poetry was part of people's lives anymore, at least in the United States. First of all, what prompted that question? Well, this actually was a little while ago with the inauguration, because one of the things, the, the many sort of outdated and fun rituals surrounding the inauguration is you have somebody stand up and read a poem and i heard this poem and i thought man i it's, it's interesting that we still do this as a part of our public life as you were saying this is something that usually happens in america and it, it mentioned like the plum blush of morning i believe and i thought is poetry dead and just because i when sometimes when you haven't heard from something in a while in your own life you think well maybe it's dead i often have this problem with like olivia de Havilland, but it turns out she's also still alive uh, <laughs> and but you sometimes you only find out about these things from obituaries so you asked that question and and and, and you brought this up and and the response uh, among people who care about poetry was uh, it was ferocious in some in some cases, right? There are people who really wanted you to know that poetry was Oh, yeah. Dead. I still get emails about this. There's always one piece that you've written at some point that hangs around your Internet neck like an albatross to the point that I'll still, like, they came out with an edition in 2013 of the best poetry, and they in the introduction said, while Alexandra Petra at the Washington Post thinks that poetry is dead and compared it unfavorably to the Postal Service, as something where people think they're doing a wonderful service for you and are actually wandering around just costing taxpayers money. We think that poetry is still very much alive. So the, not only is poetry not dead, but the piece that I wrote saying that poetry might be dead also won't die. The zombie effect is very much present. So let's talk to a couple of uh, poets about this. They'll be part of our conversation as well. Jay Perini, a writer, poet, and the author of six books of poetry, most recently New and Collected Poems, 75 to uh, 2015. Also a professor of English uh, and creative writing at Middlebury College in Vermont. In some ways, the seeds of this show were sown a while back when he appeared on a different show uh, with us about historical fiction. And we said, well, obviously, when it gets to be National Poetry Month, uh, we have to have Jay back on. And then one of my favorite poets in uh, a Connecticut poet, Margaret Gibson, a poet, Professor Emerita, and the author of many books uh, of poetry and prose, including Broken Cup, winner of the 2016 Pushcart Prize, and The Prodigal Daughter, Reclaiming an Unfinished Childhood. So uh, two poets here. Jay Perini, we'll uh, start with you uh, up there in the Middlebury College studios. Um, can can Alexandra Petri be forgiven at, at all for wondering out loud about the death of poetry. Um, obviously, it's very alive in your life, in your classrooms, in your books. Uh, I don't know whether it's quite so alive in your local grocery store. 
I think she's probably right in thinking that the American public probably doesn't give a damn about poetry, and it's been the case for decades, maybe even going back to the beginning of the 20th century. Um, poetry has had a hard time finding an audience. I just say that poetry is not dead. Poetry is the same. It's alive. It's thrilling. There's all kinds of stuff going on, but the audience wanders in and out of attention and, and seems to be, the, I, I really would say, is the audience for poetry dead? Not as poetry dead. Poetry is very much alive. And with someone like me, I teach poetry every day at Middlebury College. I write poetry uh, most weeks. I'm constantly working on a poem. And I have been for 50 years. So for me, and, I, and I've been reading poetry steadily for 50 years. And I mean steadily. Uh, mo uh, the, the vast range of, of British and American poets, even international poets, are rarely very far from my mind. So I just know there are a lot of people like myself living in, often teachers of high school, teaching in colleges, and there just is a pretty solid audience for poetry. But on the public airwaves, and in generally speaking, in American culture, poetry gets lost in the shuffle, in the shuffle of, no there's so much noise nowadays. How does poetry compete with, say, Donald Trump? It's very difficult to do because you've got this incredible noise machine called the television, the radio, um, the newspapers, and it's, and it's pushing out all this blather. And for me, poetry is going to increasingly, I think, I would predict, going to become increasingly a place where people fed up with the styrofoam language of our culture retreat to find authentic, clear language that somehow reflects their experience and embodies their feelings and their thoughts. So um, I'm going to switch over to Margaret Gibson for a, a second here also. Uh, as you can hear, there's kind of a, a little technical problem up there in Middlebury. We're going to see if we can work on that with the Middlebury studio a little bit. But So Margaret Gibson, first of all, welcome to this conversation. Thank you. Um, you know, one of the things that I think about, about poetry sometimes is that if you say to the average person, would you like... Would you like me to buy you a volume of poetry? Would you like to go to a poetry reading with me? They'll probably say no, or they'll think they don't like poetry, or it doesn't have any relationship to them. And then, you know, these, there are these moments where they're confronted with it uh, unexpectedly. They're at four weddings and a funeral, and then there's the famous Auden poem, which uh, you know, is in that movie. Uh, and that, then actually got, I think it was separately printed up and sold at cash registers at bookstores and stuff, because everybody said, what's that poem? That's great. I never heard a poem like that. That's the most terrific poem in the world. And, and the movie El Postino created this brand new market for Neruda among people who had never heard of Neruda before. But the minute they heard these poems in the movie, they thought, well, those are fabulous and those are very earthy and very much about my life. I, I, I want those. And, and you know, uh, although Alexandra talks about the tradition of the inaugural poem, I think there have only ever been five presidential inaugural poets, starting with Frost, unless Kennedy was reviving a tradition that had been moribund for centuries or something. There have not been a lot of inaugural poets, but people hear Maya Angelou do a rock, a tree, a, a river, and they go, well, that's great. I want a copy of that. So it's people think they don't like the category of poetry until they hear poetry. Well, um, you know, I think poetry has a lot of different functions. One of them is ceremonial. I think it's great that people picked up on, a po uh, on Neruda's poems from a movie. I think Jay is right. The audience for poetry needs to be waked up. It's not that poetry isn't lush, sexy, relevant, um, has you functioning as a, as a reader and as a writer of poetry, both as a witness to what goes on in one's inner world and a witness to what goes on in the outer world. Poetry is immensely 
necessary to people's lives. A lot of people don't know that. For some people, poetry's been ruined in school. For some um, people, poetry has been ruined by thinking that it has to have a lot of rules and so forth. Most most people who come to poetry with an open mind, who are fortunate to get there, um, find that poetry helps them to live their lives. Poetry makes living in the world more alive, more brilliant, more sensual, more thoughtful, more contemplative. Now, poets may choose not to be um, acknowledged legislators, governors, elected to the Senate, and so forth. Some poets may choose, I love this this phrase of um, Thomas Merton's, by the way, to li- and he was talking about monks, um, to live a life of deliberate irrelevance. <laughs> irrelevance is consumers. Irrelevance is making a lot of noise. Jay talked about that. But not relevant in in the, the one of the greatest educations in the world is self-education. Who am I? What is my life? Who is this other person? Who are these other people? How do we live? Poetry is very, very rich and necessary for that. We just have to let people know. So, uh, Alexandra Petri, I live near what uh, Larry Bloom once described as uh, perhaps America's only poetry-induced traffic jam. There's something <laughs> called the Sunken Garden Poetry Festival, and it pours out. You know, maybe I've been there when there seemed to be about 1,800 people sitting around listening to one poet read for the evening, uh, and then people drive out into Route 4, and they can't move, and you sort of think, well, this is like it's an Aerosmith concert or something. So, um, But but one argument that could be made and that has been made is that poetry and poets priced themselves out of the market at a certain point, that they, you know, I'm sitting here in Connecticut where Wallace Stevens and James Merrill both wrote poetry, and Alexander, some people would say, well, it became willfully difficult in a way that that made it less approachable to people. I assume that might be one of the fences you have to climb with poetry. Well, I think there's a couple of things I've been thinking of listening to all of this is a lot of it depends on how you define poetry, because if you define poetry as just sort of a, a freshness of language and a phrase that allows you to sort of penetrate to the truth of something that you wouldn't necessarily have encountered in the sort of prosaic language that you usually use on a day-to-day basis, then it's everywhere. You can find it in songs. You can find it in musicals. You can find it pretty much anytime people talk in a way that isn't their normal form of talking. Or like when Sarah Palin gives a speech. I mean, honestly, speaking of poetry in the public square, I was just reading her thing about the holy rollers and the hand that rocks the cradle. And that's, I think that's a kind of rogue poetry uh, in, a, in a way. But an, another thing that struck me in terms of sort of how do you bump into it and who's writing it and how is it being manufactured. It's also, like, many great artists have had day jobs. So the T.S. Eliot working in his bank, writing some of the greatest poems ever. And I think one thing we are always surprised by is in, like, the 1800s, Thomas Love Peacock, a colleague of Percy Shelley's wrote saying that he thought, well, poetry is basically over now. We've had four ages of it. There was the good poetry of the golden age. Then there was the sort of silver poetry of the modern age. And we've said everything that can be said. All the people who are doing it now are wasting their time because we've already had all the good poetry. And then, of course, he was Percy Shelley's contemporary. So we pretty much tell that that's not the case. I think as long as people are doing it, it'll work its way out and find us. But just the paths through which it'll do that are not the same as when you would sort of 
gather around the Iliad late at night and listen to someone over, going over people biting the dust and so forth. All right, we're going to grab a quick break here. I want to come back to that question. I think there is a big distinction to be make, made between poetic language and poetry, uh, but uh, let's take a break and come back after that. Deletes selected letters. We see the revered exegete reject metered verse. The sestet, the tercet, even les saints élevés en grec. He rebels. He says he All right, uh, we're back. Uh, we're talking about poetry, poetry and its rightful, uh, proper place uh, in our lives. Uh, the notion that it should be more present, perhaps omnipresent. Um, one of my favorite movies of the last couple of years is Grand Budapest Hotel. And the characters led by Ray Fiennes have this habit of lifting one finger in the air and then declaiming uh, some usually pretty bad and mawkish poem. But the notion anyway, uh, you know, part of the joke is that poetry is here you know, these middle European people on the cusp of World War II. Poetry is very much in their lives. The notion that they would not express themselves poetically is just, you know, way beyond their ken. Uh, and it's both funny and kind of true. You know, I mean, it's it's true that 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 poetry should be uh, in what we say. It should be informing uh, the rhythms of our speech probably more than it does. So so why doesn't it? What's the struggle? Or maybe it does. Maybe the problem's being overstated. We're talking about this with two poets, Jay Perini and Margaret Gibson. We're talking about it with Alexandra Petri, uh, who writes uh, some very funny stuff for the Washington Post and caused a stir when she wondered whether poetry was slipping away forever. Uh, and um, so Jay Perini, I think we have uh, you back. Uh, technologically. And, and I want to pose to you a question that I posed to Margaret, too, that one case th that could be made was that at some point poetry started pricing itself out of the market, you know, whether it's Pound or Hopkins or Wallace Stevens who used to write poems walking right by this building uh, on his way home from his job at the Hartford Insurance Group, whether it's James Merrill writing the changing light at Sandover down in Stonington, Connecticut, down here, that some of this stuff is difficult. It's willfully difficult. Occasionally the practitioners will actually say, you know, yes, it's difficult. I'm glad it's difficult. <laughs> it should be difficult. Uh, and, and the minute you do that, you start separating certain sheep from certain goats. I, I don't know. What's your reaction to that? Well, my reaction, um, hearing about poetry being happening, say, just in speech, fresh language, a bit of song, a snatch on the, of music somewhere, uh, these are all little aspects of poetry. But I'm talking about the kind of deep poetic language that's based in a kind of rhythmical tradition and where there's a conversation that's been going on from the time of Homer right up through T.S. Eliot and right up to James Merrill and the present day. Um, I'm thinking that where do we get this kind of language? And we do see it sometimes in liturgical places. We see it in wedding ceremonies. We go to poetry at funerals. There's funerals where we often hear a poem read. When we go to church... We hear the Psalms read, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. When we hear something like that, we know it's poetry. You know, when you jump into an icy cold pond, you know you're in water. When you, when you jump into a real poem, you know where you are. You know that there's something going on around you that is special. And uh, sometimes you're in very deep, cold water. You jump into the middle of Wallace Stevens at his most intense, and it's pretty icy and deep and strange and, to me, very, very wonderful. T.S. Eliot, you read, that was just yesterday, teaching his four quartets. It's difficult poetry, but it's, po poet it's language that's pushing to the boundaries of thought and feeling. It's a deeply spiritual poetry that's in connection with the Christian Bible, with the Jewish scriptures, 
with Hindu scriptures, the Upanishads. It's in touch with Buddhism. Um, so real poetry, what I would call real poetry, or poetry that's you know in touch with a tradition, has these resonances that go very, very deep. Sometimes it's difficult, like Wallace Stevens or T.S. Eliot. Sometimes, like Robert Frost, it's just two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry, I could not travel both and be one traveler and so forth. Right? Very simple poetry. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. Um, caught on that rhythm. Yeah. And, 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 you know, even the most modern poets are writing one of my favorite poems. And I, I, I almost brought the book in from the house with me, but uh, I may not be saying his name right. Is, but Charles Simic, who has a poem called Fork that begins, what is this thing from hell? Uh, and, you know, it's just about a fork, basically. Uh, but it, in some ways kind of animate, animates the world around us. So, Margaret Gibson, um, one of the things that, that you've done with the most with your most recent book is to write uh, about something that a lot of us have had to deal with. My, I was an only child who watched my widowed mother and accompanied my widowed mother through uh, the twists and turns of, of Alzheimer's disease. This is something you've gone through in your life with your husband. Um, and, and you ultimately were able to turn it into poetry. But I gather from what I've read about it, too, was, was that the first thing that it did was make it almost impossible for you to write poetry. Well, when my husband was diagnosed with with Alzheimer's, there were there were so many changes um, to adjust to here at home, and I probably went into um, shock and overdrive and um, latent grieving and all sorts of things. I was working on getting a, a book that had already been written into print, but no, I didn't write any new poems for a couple of years, and then then it just came back. I had to learn a new set of habits. I couldn't be down in my study anymore, um, away from where David was. I needed to know where he was in the house. So I learned eventually to write poems on the sofa at night while he was watching the news. I learned to get up in the middle of the night when it was quiet and do it. I learned to do it after breakfast, just whatever. Um, writing the poems was... was um, for me, a way, obviously, a form of healing, a form of celebrating David's life, a form of articulating the change and the grief. But Alzheimer's is also about not just losing language, losing memory, losing a sense of oneself. And as painful as it is to watch that happen to someone you love or um, help us all to experience it, there are, the disease itself raised certain kinds of questions that have been in my work a long time. Uh, the value of language, questions like what is the self, what of the self or the no self outstays loss after loss. Um, a lot of us equate being human with how we lo- use language, what it allows us to do, um, whether we're inventing something technological or investigating imagery and music and learning to clarify via language um, some some sorts of deep mysteries so yeah I mean it I felt as if I made a return um, to some of the roots of, of why we write at all um, and it, it was for me perhaps also it was a rich balancing as David 
lost language, um, my appreciation for the role of image and for um, not just um, poetry as communication, but language and other forms of communication making possible new possibilities of perceiving um, and of communicating. Um, I didn't say that very clearly, but it, it's, it's actually been a very enriching experience um, as well as a very grievous one, my husband's illness. So I want to come back to that in our, our third and final segment. But before we run out of time in this one, Alexander Petri, one of the upsides uh, of writing a column like the one that you wrote, the, this uh, po- this column that will never go away, that will be Googled forever every time somebody types in his poetry dead uh, or something like that, it's going to come back, uh, even though you may have altered your views a little bit. But another thing was that people apparently wrote to you and said, are you kidding? Well, you've got to read this. You've got to read that. You'd love this. So as a result, I take it you, you have a whole bunch of new poets and uh, poems in your life no exactly it's, been, it's a great way to get recommendations i think someone famously said the best way to learn the right answer to something is to post the wrong answer on the internet and so <laughs> if the question is who should what poetry should i be reading right now the I, I got a lot of answers and so i've been tearing through ann carson and i'm looking forward to picking up the poetry from this segment as well yeah. So, um, so Anne Carson is uh, your new favorite. You'll be reading some Jay Perini. Oh yeah. I mean Greek mythology, but also just the weird shattered language that she uses. Mm. I just think it's really terrific. But if you like uh, the Greek mythology part, uh, Louise Gluck's uh, Meadowlands is also uh, a pretty good uh, jump into that river. Anyway, we have to uh, leave for about a minute, in about a minute. We'll leave for just a few minutes while we do that public radio thing, which is the fundraising thing. Um, if you like shows like this, if you enjoy the idea that somebody would uh, talk about the modern role of poetry, how poetry fits in uh, to life in 2016, uh, if you like this particular show and the way that we approach things, uh, one great thing you could do is make a pledge right now. It really helps our shows uh, on where we live this morning. We had a great, great morning. I did about $3,000 in pledges. That was wonderful. So, you know, let's let's kind of come back up to that level right here. Nice people are going to, I think it's Katie Glass and Patrick Scahill are going to ask you to pledge. And so do as they ask, please. It really does help our show. With light feet Swiftly and noiselessly stepping Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro with a cast of a thousand zombies. He tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our interns are Tiana Duquette and Benjamin Esty. The part of Bill Curry was played by Billy Collins. For show pages, articles, and audio of the Here and Now staff reading the poetry of Rod McEwen, go to our website, wnpr.org. On tomorrow's show, our salute to bulldozers. And now, back to Colin. All right. Uh, the conversation we're having is about poetry. It is National Poetry Month. It should be always National Poetry Month, but maybe it isn't. Uh, and we're talking about the role that it plays in our lives. Alexander Petri joined us at the beginning of the show. She's uh, gone now. We're uh, left with our two poets, uh, Jay Perini, writer, poet, author of six books of poetry, including new and collected poems, 1975 to 2015, also a professor of English and creative writing at Middlebury College in Vermont, uh, Margaret Gibson, a poet, professor emerita, and author of many books of poetry and prose, including Broken Cup, 
winner of the 2016 Pushcart Prize and the prodigal daughter reclaiming an unfinished childhood. Margaret Gibson, one of many wonderful uh, Connecticut poets. So um, I want to um, maybe just talk a little bit about why why write a poem. Jay, Jay Perini, you have to deal with this in your own life. I assume you have to deal with it also when you talk to students who are either are or are not going to write poems. Um, what's the answer to the question, why write a poem? You know, I think sometimes when we talk about poetry, we make it sound way too serious. And um, maybe in er- the earlier segments here, we made it sound like it was kind of dreary. And uh, and and I think we have to remember that poet language is when it goes when when language goes dancing, it sort of moves in the direction of poetry. And poetry can simply be a lot of fun. And I get when I give poetry readings, I like to get the audiences really laughing. And and you know, poems should be funny. They should make you cry. They should make you laugh. I mean, the whole range of human emotion is there in a very intense form. And the language somehow grabs life by the throat and shakes it, you know. So there's a kind of sense of really living your life to the absolute fullest when you're deeply engaged with a poem, writing a poem, reading a poem. Uh, I don't even make such a big distinction between reading and writing. I always say that my writing is going well only when my reading is going well. So I try to be reading my favorite poets every day and being inspired with it by them. And often the poems I write are written in response to that or saying, hey, what about this? It's, it's a big, um, messy conversation, the world of poetry. And, uh, you know, I just would encourage your, your listeners to go out and get some poetry and read it and enjoy it. I mean, there's just so much good stuff out there. Um, it, it does seem to talk uh, be a way to think about the human predicament, whatever, whatever that predicament is. Uh, Margaret Gibson, uh, I remember being very uh, moved and perhaps encouraged uh, listening to Stanley Kunitz read. Uh, I think it might be called "Hold Me." I, mean, I can't remember what the poem is called. It's about being in your nineties and still being sexually active. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, I mean, that's good news, right? Uh, good to hear that. Um, and and uh, to to Jay's point. Uh, we can talk very seriously about poetry, and sometimes we should. But the other thing that, that poetry does is really connect us in one way or another, whether it's about uh, sex at 90 or something else, to joy. Uh, I think that's absolutely right. Um, I, Jay just said um, something that, about his life. His poems were going well and his reading was going well and vice versa. I'd just like to say that my life is going well when my writing is going well. Um, and I think that's because... Writing makes me feel more alive, um, it, more attentive, uh, more open to surprise and possibility, and to try to trying to translate uh, mysterious or funny or grievous moments into language that ultimately then can be shared with someone else. Um, I think of poetry as um, one as an act of giving. Um, I, I was in an audience once when. Um, Jane Hirschfield was reading, and the audience was dutifully clapping after every poem, and she stopped them and and said, I don't write clappers. (laughs) I give you poems because the deep in me wants to connect with the deep in you. And the silence that then followed the poems that she read was dancing with energy and really profound and good. And I love, there are all kinds of ways to give a good poetry reading, to get the audience laughing, to get them crying, to get them simply to feel that wonderful sensation when a little something you didn't know, a little 
appears to you. It's, it could be just a sensation that a door has opened and you're walking into now a different country and you're about to learn something that you didn't know before. It's, it's sensational. Um, those, those small moments that make such a big difference um, to one's life and can be given to others. I like that a lot. Um, uh, I, I mentioned that Margaret is one of Connecticut's great poets. I think we've got a caller here from Uncasville, which, of course, uh, now is forever associated <laughs> with something else. But I, I think we've uh, got a call about another of Connecticut's great poets. Uh, Richard, are you on the line there? Yes. Hello there. Hello, everyone. Hello. Um, I'm Richard Hartice, and uh, thank you for this show. This is a great idea. And a lovely guest that you have as well, who I know both. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just wanted to say that um, so often when the great ones fall off the planet, like William Meredith, who was a U.S. poet laureate and a pilot in World War II and in Korea, they're they're forgotten. And and happily, uh, Michael Passero, our mayor here in New London, just proclaimed April 22nd as William Meredith Day in the city of New London. So we're very pleased about that. And um, I think one of the roles of poetry that perhaps William was one of the few people, as a pilot in World War II and in Korea, he wrote a wonderful poem called The Wreck of the Thresher about the loss of those 128 sailors uh, in that early nuclear submarine disaster. And that poem has become the basis for a permanent memorial to those brave men uh, who died. And so poetry has many functions, and this is one, a kind of more formal one, that uh, William was able to... um, Proposed, shall we say. And uh, so he was a beloved teacher, and uh, I think Margaret and Jay both knew him well. He taught at uh, Breadloaf, and um, we have a little foundation called the William Meredith Foundation.org to continue his legacy. And, and, you know, when people have spent a whole lifetime uh, accruing wisdom and talent, um, it's, it's important, I think, that we not forget them. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful sentiment, Richard. Um, I want to, we've got some other calls coming in. I want to make some room on the board for them. But thank you so, so much for calling in about William Meredith, one of our uh, great uh, southeastern Connecticut. I mean, he was a great national poet, but uh, he and, uh, and James Merrill both uh, lived down there kind of towards the southeastern corner of our state. Um, you know, uh, Jay, just to come back to this idea, too, it's, it seems, I mean, uh, particularly apropos of what he was saying about the thresher, uh, you may have your own reactions to this, but, you know, there's sort of two ways that poetry gets used, right? And I, I do remember talking to James Merrill when he became Connecticut's first ever state poet laureate. And I said, well, are you going to, like, write poems about the state budget or the governor's, you know, new suit or something? And he said, well, I don't think so, no. I don't think I'll be writing po- poems for the governor's birthday or something, but but I'll be here in Connecticut writing poems anyway. And so that's that's the way that's going to be. But there is this sense that we have, and it goes back to something that you were saying, that, that we do want poets around for certain kinds of liminal moments, you know? And not for nothing do we use them at inaugurations because, in fact, it's, it is a moment where we're saying— all right, what's going to happen next? You know, where are we now, and, and what's wh- what's the next thing? Yeah, I think poets often are taking the pulse of the country. After something like 9-11, I think that 9-11 uh, was one of the most horrible experiences for most Americans who were alive at that time. But it yielded a great quantity of reflective poetry that was thinking about terrorism, was thinking about what is this United States, where do we stand, what is our place in the world, Political poetry is a very important uh, 
function for poets, I think, to be able to address a political situation with strong language. Uh, I think our great poets have always done that. They've faced up to their times. It was Wallace Stevens who said poetry has to face, talk about war, has to talk, talk to the women of the time, has to talk to the people of the time, the men of the time. It has to be responsive to life as it's actually breaking right in front of them. Um, I, I do think that sort of what next thing is a big part of poetry, uh, Margaret. Um, I, I was as I was getting ready for this show, or actually it was during the last fundraising break. I just took out a piece of paper and wrote down all the little, you know, phrases from poetry that are in my head. These little broken shards of poetry that that pepper my speech. And uh, one of them, for some reason or other, is "Our bodies heavy with weeping," which is from Pound's Canto One. But that one ends so that right that the last words of the poem are so that. And to me, that's that's one thing that poetry does a lot, rather than telling you this complete story and wrapping everything up in a neat bow kind of leads you on to the next thing. Um, I think so. Um, whether the subject is, is political or personal, um, I, I think that, um, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I think you, the, the poet is, is, should be, I think, or can be, somewhat, um, very instrumental in moving not only himself or herself, but the reader, ultimately, of the poem um, into a place of new perception, and, and when perception changes, then action can change. Um, and so there's this wonderful interplay that goes back and forth between con- contemplation um, and action, um, and they both in- inform each other. But endings can be sometimes ways of just really pulling the rug out from under uh, the, the reader in, in, in a really good way. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, I, I don't know how I don't want to take too much time, but I just I've just finished revising a poem that was all about a dream, and very lush language, surprising things happening in it, and then I, I ended it in this ridiculous way. I said, "But I'm waking up now. To whom and to what I know not." There's a whole. It's trite. There's a whole tradition of poems that say, "I'm dreaming." Oh, now I'm waking up, and it separates the dream world from the world we um, normally inhabit during the daylight hours and so forth. And so I went back and threw out that ending. It took a long time, but I wrote an ending that was more in keeping with the language of the poem and then stumbled on an image that just came up from about 40 years ago. Um, and, And it became the basis of having the inner world and the outer world meet. But you know what the image was? What? It was two friends of mine who just started a love affair. They met each other on the street in New York. They said, oh, hi, whatever, they greeted each other by name. But then they stood close to each other, and they touched tongues. I've never forgotten it. People on the street were like, whoa. Some people were a little <laughs> surprised, a little offended. At the end of this poem, the inner and the outer, when they meet, stand close, their eyes open, and their mouths touching tongues. I just want to say in that funny ending, surprising ending, there are boundaries and separations when we make them, but we can always be in touch with something, with each other, with ourselves, with surprising, um, with surprising images and insights. That's why I write poetry, is for those moments when those little electric images just come up and, and change things for me. 
Margaret Gibson, I think that one will stay with a lot of people. We've, uh, Jay Perini, we've only got about two minutes left, and I'm going to ask you a, a question that has about a 45-minute answer to it, but uh, but help me out anyway. You know, um, Alexander was talking essentially about found poetry, about how you hear poetry in certain things. There's a terrific volume called Holy Cow in which people uh, somebody took uh, Phil Rizzuto's comments as a Yankee in answer and arranged them all as, as poetry. Um, to me, I like I love all that stuff. Uh, but it seems to me that the only w- way that you can recognize it for what it is and enjoy it for what it is is to read real poetry. I think so. Um, you mentioned Ezra Pound as a fra- having a fragment from the cantos that stayed in your head. Mm. And this morning when I was driving into town, for whatever reason, I looked around at the beautiful landscape and I thought of a line from the cantos. What thou lovest well remains, the rest, the rest is, is dross. dross. And there you go. That is poetry. What thou lovest well remains. The rest is dross. Pull down thy vanity. I say, pull down. It's fabulous, and it's moments like this, moments of extreme lucidity in language, moments of emotional clarity that really lift us up and transform our lives. The other day, kind of apropos of Margaret's work, uh, we were talking about ALS, a disease which has kind of touched my life. And I was talking about how, you know, uh, 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 Elliot said people, uh, but Prufrock measured out his life in coffee spoons. And ALS is like a coffee spoon, like a coffee spoon attached to a coffee uh, can with a hole in it. I said it better that last time. But that poetry, in a way, does allow us to describe our own lives, even if it's not our poetry. All right. Thanks to everybody who helped out today. Uh, I think that's Madonna reciting Neruda in the background. We've got people coming up who are going to ask you to support this show. Please, please do support this show when they ask you to. Thanks to Jay Perini. Thanks to Margaret Gibson. Thanks to Alexandra Petra. And thanks to Betsy Kaplan. Okay, zombies, I'm working on a new poem. I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a nurse. A piece of bread? A tree? You like that? You really like that.